Welcome to Navigating Consciousness. I'm Rupert Sheldrake, and this is a podcast of my talks and conversations. If you enjoy listening, please subscribe and leave a review in your favorite podcatcher. It really helps. Well, thank you, Andy and Emily. I, too, have a rather similar perspective. Um, First of all, scientifically... Um, I think we live in a living world that nature is truly alive. It's not a machine. The earth is a living organism. The universe is a living organism. Plants and animals are truly living. And the soil is alive in a way that no one imagined a few years ago. The microbiome of the soil, the mycorrhizae, the uh, bacteria, we're dealing with living systems. My own um, involvement with agriculture was primarily in India, I'm a gardener, but um, in terms of serious agriculture, I used to work in India. I lived there for seven years, and I worked at an agricultural research institute, ICRASAT. I was the principal plant physiologist uh, dealing with the growth of chickpeas and pigeon peas. Um, and that, because I was working on a farm, an experimental farm, and I later spent two years living in a village in Tamil Nadu, um, I I was very curious and interested in how Indian farmers relate to their land. And they have a worldview that's totally different from everything we're used to here, more like the kind of things that Emily and Andy were talking about reaching back to, but there it's a living presence. Every village has holy trees in it, usually a pair of trees, uh, often a neem and a peepal, male and female trees that people walk around for fertility. There are holy animals everywhere, as anyone who's been to India will know. Even in modern highways, you have sacred cows that just go to sleep in the middle of the road, and all the traffic goes round them. Um, But I hadn't... Everyone knows about sacred cows. I didn't know about sacred cobras till I found one in my uh, toilet. I lived lived in a wing of a crumbling palace in Hyderabad, and um, I had one of those sort of squat-type lavatories, and one day I went in there, it was this huge cobra sort of wrapped around a lavatory. I was horrified. So I asked my cook to drive it out and help drive it out of the house. And I said, maybe we should kill it. And he said, no, sir, we cannot kill it. It is a sacred animal. He said, we worship it on Nag Puja Day, Snake Puja Day. There's an annual festival. And sure, he invited me. He said, today is Nag Puja Day, so we are visiting the cobra. And he and the other pe- people who lived in the uh, palace had a little saucer of milk outside the termite mound where the cobra lived, and they were burning incense sticks. Um, coming to terms, a relationship with the cobra, make friends with them, they won't bite you. Um, and <clears throat> one night I was um, uh, woken up uh, when I was asleep to find something moving over my face and felt a scaly tail trailing over my cheeks. It's the only time I've suffered from sleep paralysis. I couldn't move, I couldn't scream out. A rat was walking over my face. So I asked my co I said, look, get rid of these rats. I, you know, I just don't, you know, I like living close to nature. This is too far. And, and, um, and he bought a rat trap and it caught them live. When I got back from work that evening, there was a live rat in this little cage. And I said, well, could you kill it? He said, Saba, I cannot kill the rat. It is a sacred animal. It is the vehicle of Lord Ganesh. 
And I said, well, can you get rid of it? He said, I can get rid of it. Put it on the back of his bicycle, pedaled off, came back an hour or two later and said he'd taken it far away and released it. After that, whenever I went round Hyderabad, I saw people with little cages with rats on the back of bicycles. The total number of rats remained the same. They were simply being redistributed. Um, so um, there's this sense of animals being alive and sacred and plants as well. And um, then when I was working in my agricultural institute, the first year I was there, I was astonished on a big Indian festival day, Durga Puja. I arrived at the laboratory to find the drying ovens, the weighing machines, all the apparatus garlanded with marigold flowers and other floral garlands, the little limes under the wheels of our pickup truck, and as the head of the, uh, of the department, I was asked to drive it forward to crush them as a sacrifice to Durga, the goddess, who protects the tools of the trade. Um, the American head of our computing sciences division, it was an international institute, uh, arrived to find a coconut on a block of stone in front of the mainframe computer, and he was asked to break it as a sacrifice uh, for asking for the blessings on the computer. The computer was sacralized, incorporated into this sacralized worldview, which is how Indians do things. And so I was uh, very amazed by all this and realized that for an Indian going into the field and farming, and when I lived in a village, I saw this again, it's not just growing crops and owning land or renting land. I mean, of course, that's all there. It's part of the economic activity. But it has a meaning, and it has a meaning that's tied in with seasonal festivals, that's tied in with sacred plants, that's tied in with the relationship between humans and the earth and the spirit realm. When I came back to England after living in India, uh, seeing the way agriculture is done here in this desacralized, secularized way with a machine theory of life and of nature, um, I felt something had gone horribly wrong. A lot of my work uh, has, since then has been uh, trying to regain a sense of living nature. In my book, The Science Delusion, um, you're, uh, if some of you may have seen it, but uh, I show how the dogma dogmas of mechanistic science, um, each one of them has actually been superseded by science itself. We're returning to a view of living nature. And even in mainstream biology, the epigenetic revolution means the inheritance of acquired characters is now mainstream. It was the total taboo in the 20th century. It's now mainstream. Plants grown in particular conditions give seeds that are more... If, for example, a recent paper showed tomato plants heavily attacked by insects, give seeds which... Uh, give plants which are more resistant to insect attack. It's called epigenetic inheritance. There's not yet an epigenetic seed company, uh, but I think there ought to be, uh, because this is a way of growing seeds that you can, uh, in one generation, uh, you can uh, resist, and so depending on how they're grown. The current model says it's just DNA in a little package, and you can modify it at will, and a seed is just a package of DNA. No, we now know that this, it depends on how it's grown. The other thing that I thought about when I returned uh, to England was how could this sacralized attitude that we see in India that gives people a sense of meaning and relationship to the land uh, come about here in England, wrestling with the same uh, questions that Emily and Andy have been talking about. I myself went to in India an atheist um, interested in yoga and meditation and Hindu philosophy, 
and then went through a kind of Hindu phase. Then I had a Sufi teacher, and then found my way back into the Christian tradition. I thought, well, actually, I'm English. It makes much more sense to, be, to relate to my own ancestral roots. So when I came back, I sort of rediscovered our own traditions here. When looking at uh, the residues of these, every Rogation Sunday in England, which this year is on April the 3rd, um, churches in villages throughout the land uh, blessed ploughs, the instruments of the trade, and uh, they used to beat the bands, some still do, walk round the parish and bless the fields. I was at a village in uh, Somerset two or three years ago. I happened to be there on a Rogation Sunday. I go to church wherever I am on Sundays, which means I get to see all sorts of different uh, communities and churches. And we went, uh, the whole group went out of the church and didn't walk round the whole parish. It was fairly slimmed down, but on, in, facing in each direction there were prayers for the land, for the woods, for the footpaths, for those who maintain the footpaths, for the fields. I thought, this is wonderful. Here it is actually still happening, a blessing on the land. And um, many people have forgotten this or have just rejected the tradition or see it as... But I think the, the fact that it's there and it's part of the mainstream and it's still going on means it can be ri- revived and revitalized. The same is true of patronal festivals. All villages have a patron saint and they have time of celebration in that village. Um, I think that could be revived. Um, I think May Day and Midsummer's Day, which are traditional festivals, times of parties and celebration, are already undergoing revivals. Here in Oxford, May Day is big. The Glastonbury Festival usually takes place over Midsummer's Day, June the 24th. It's a traditional summertime for festivals. Um, And I think that uh, festivalizing farms by having days when the farm is celebrated and there's a party there, it it would be a very good way to go. I mean, um, a friend of mine in America who is a great social activist has a a principle that I believe in myself. If you want to change the world, throw a better party. And uh, uh, we have these sort of festival days, traditional ones, May Day and Midsummer's Day particularly, uh, which are a vacuum in most places, just crying out for something to happen. On the continent, in Catholic countries, when you go to farms, as in India, on farms there are little shrines in the corner of fields to, in Catholic countries, usually the patron saint or the Blessed Virgin, in India, various gods and goddesses, but there are little shrines in the field uh, where people uh, are always aware of a spiritual presence and protection. Um, So I think all of these things are perfectly possible to find new ways of doing it that make sense. I myself like the idea of connecting with the tradition where people who've lived on this land for centuries have related in this way to the land uh, before the mechanistic revolution and before the atheist revolutions came along. Um, And uh, I think reconnecting with our own traditions is very important. Andy's doing it in, in one way, Emily's doing it in another um, and I think these are all signs of a movement in that direction. There's also a revival of pilgrimage going on in Britain at the moment. There's now a one-day uh, route, footpath route through the fields to every one of our cathedrals and to other sacred places. The British Pilgrimage Trust is reopening ancient routes, and if you go to britishpilgrimage.org, you can find there's now dozens of routes, uh, which, and you can follow them on a GPX on a mobile phone if you want to be a very modern kind of pilgrim. And that's another way of relating to the land. 
The final point I want to make is that a very practical one and literally down to earth. When I was living in, um, I was doing experiments up in the Lahul Valley on the borders of Tibet in northern India. I was living in the farmhouse of a farming family there. And uh, they had a kind of outhouse area where you, the lavatory was a sort of planks and a hole in the ground. And it, uh, then you threw straw over it. And they, they were creating human manure. Everything that came out of the members of that family went onto their land every year. They directly returned to the land what had come from it. Um, if I had a farm, which I don't, I'd have a composting toilet and try and do this on a limited scale, giving a much more personal connection with the land at the most basic possible level. Uh, so I think there's many ways in which we can relate to the land and find meaning in it more, whether we're farmers or not. Um, and I think it's all part of this process that all, all, all of us have been talking about today. And the fact you're here means that you must be interested in this sort of thing too. And I think it's um, a shift in mind. It's not going to cost anything, um, but I think it's going to make people's lives healthier, happier, and feel more connected. Thank you.